Colossians 1. Paul's epistle to the Colossian believers. This has been such a bomb to my soul going through this epistle. So filled with Jesus. It's really, as we're getting your Bibles and we're going to be turning to the passage, it's really just one big continuous section here, verses 15 to 23. Uh, but obviously, you can't preach it in one sitting, or we would be here for quite a long time. So we did have to break it up, so I'm sorry if you didn't get to hear last week, but I do have to somewhat hit the ground running uh, this week in order to uh, be able to deal with the three verses that we're going to be looking at so in some detail. So we read the first pass part earlier, so we'll pick it up in verse 21 for our sermon. Let's stand up together in honor of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. Hear the Word of God to you this morning. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what we saw last week, the passage we read for our prep for worship, is that Jesus is the supreme, all-sufficient Lord of all. He's Lord over all creation, and he's the head of his new creation, which is the church, his body. Last week we had the joy of looking at verses 15 to 18, where Paul opens up for us in great glorious detail the preeminence of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, last week time ran out, unfortunately, before we got to look at verses 19 and 20. Um... So before we roll right into verses 21 and to 23, where we're going to spend the lion's share of our time this morning, we have to take just a few moments to take a little look at verses 19 and 20, because they're going to lead us right into the verses that we're going to examine more closely this morning. So take a look in your Bibles with me quickly to verses 19 and 20. Verses 19 and 20. This is what Paul writes. For God was pleased... To have all his fullness dwell in him, that's in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, if you're awake this morning, you'd notice that there's something in this text that is a little bit puzzling. Scholars are divided in their opinions as to what exactly Paul's referring to when he says that God was pleased to reconcile all things, whether things on earth, that far we can get, right? 
But then he adds, or things in heaven through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross. So the question is, what does he mean, reconcile things in heaven? Right? Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I read this, I was like, hmm? Well, I'm going to give you just a little taste of some of the theories. And this is mostly from Bible-believing folk. They're trying to wrestle honestly with what in the world does this mean, Paul? So some will say this must mean Paul must be referring to all humans in heaven and on earth, those who know God. So in other words, he reconciles believers who, got, who went before us and are now in heaven with God, and he reconciles all people on earth who have trust in Christ. That's their position. And it's certainly um, biblical to say that, but the one problem is it really doesn't cover what the verse says, does it? The verse says all things, not all believing people. So I don't know that that's the view. Some go on to say, well, perhaps loyal angels are in view, quote unquote, placed beyond the possibility of defection in the future. So in other words, Christ's blood, when man sinned, there was this huge rift in the universe and God, through Christ, confirmed elect angels to make sure that they wouldn't fall like the demons fell. That's actually a view of scholars. Again, I don't believe that covers uh, the text very well. The view that I'm the closest, that I think is the closest to what Paul is saying here, because I don't go to a commentator, I go to the Bible itself to clarify what the Bible says, is the view that says... All things, all created things were impacted by the fall of man into sin. Things such as the earth, the moon, the stars, everything has been impacted by the fall. So everything, therefore, is impacted by redemption through Christ. I'll give you an example. Romans 8, Paul says this, in case you think I'm crazy. Romans 8, in verse 19, he says, The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. And then he goes on to say, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. So you know what that means? When we sinned, even the earth went, and God told us now it would be, the, the earth will produce thorns and it'll be by the sweat of our brow instead of things being the way they're supposed to be, harmonious but through the blood of Christ, things, even inanimate objects, will be made right and someday will be completely renewed. I think that's the closest, but I don't know that that's the perfect answer. Still others understand the things in heaven to refer to angels, people, and fallen angels. And what they will say is, not that necessarily fallen angels obviously get right with God, reconciled with God, but God will make peace with them by banishing them. That's their view. Um, again, I think that, that one is a really weak view. So I think even though all these views have some merit, I think they all leave us with more questions. So with all these great Bible-believing thinkers differing on what this means, where can we go to get a definitive answer? I wrestled for a couple weeks with this. And then I realized I can just throw my lot in with another apostle. His name is the Apostle Peter. Maybe you've heard of him. He wrote a couple epistles. And his second epistle, chapter 3, 
verse 13, Peter actually says this about Paul's writings. Listen. He says, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. And at this point I say, you think? And he says, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So I think we have to be, if the apostle Peter says, sometimes I don't know what Paul's talking about, then I feel I'm allowed to say, I'm not 100% sure what Paul is saying here. I don't know, I told you which view I lean more toward. But let me tell you this, and this is important. I will tell you with 100% certainty what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is what universalists and heretics take this verse to mean. If you've been with me, you'll see. Some people will jump on this verse and say, see, someday the devil himself and all demons will be reconciled to God. And all, even unrepentant people who die will eventually be reconciled. Because they jump on the all things, heaven and earth. You with me? But I will, I'm, I'm going to avoid the temptation to preach for about a half hour on why that can't be true. Instead, I'm going to show you from the text, give you one proof that will show definitively that can't be what Paul means. And I'll show you this. If in our passage, which we're going to look at in just a moment, in verses 21 to 23, Paul says he has reconciled you, speaking to the Colossians, in verse 23, right? He's reconciled you through the blood of Christ. Look at verse 23. If you continue in your faith. In other words, if the professing believers at Colossae expect to have the full assurance that indeed the reconciliation that the shed blood of Christ brought and accomplished was applied to them, then they must continue believing in him, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. You with me? This will only be applied to them if they truly continue to trust. That's an if. It's a conditional clause. So that in and of itself shows us Paul is not saying. He's not teaching universalism. So then what does, what does this all mean? Well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. It means this. Whatever reconciliation between God and his creation needs to be made, it's only found in the Son of God in whom all of God's fullness dwells and through whose blood shed on the cross he has made peace. You understand that? In our whole universe, the only way to be reconciled with God is through the blood of Jesus. That we know it means. And I'll tell you why it means that. Because that's his whole point in our passage. His whole point in our passage is he takes the general um, truth of the fact that Jesus is the cosmic Lord of the cosmos, right? And that his uh, reconciliation is, is a universal um, application in terms of him being Lord of all. And then he makes it very particular now. And he brings it home and he says, this is how it applies to you personally. Because all those wonderful things about Jesus are great. But the neat thing Paul says is, here's the punch of all those wonderful things about Jesus. And it's our passage. So here's the punch of the passage. Since Christ is the supreme and all-sufficient Lord of all, 
Paul tells us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we must continue in our faith in him, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. That's the point. And what Paul points out is three simple things. First thing he wants you to know is what you once were. Apart from Christ, he's going to point out what you once were. Secondly, he's going to point out what you are now in Christ. And last of all, he's going to explain why you have to continue in your faith. So let's take a look at the first one. What we once were. Look at verse 21. Paul says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Paul starts by reminding them who they were before the gospel came to them. And listen to this. He says, you were alienated from God. What Paul's saying is this. Look, it's time to jog your memory a little bit. It's time to take a little stroll down memory lane and remember what you once were. Remember the sad, desperate place you used to find yourself in. Once you were alienated from God. Just think of that word for a moment, alienated. Let it sink in. Carries the idea of estranged, separated, out in the cold. Ever think of that? With no resources of your own to remedy this sad situation between you and God. He was a million miles away. And of course, this had particular application to Paul's Gentile readers. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians. He says, you were once separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. You want to talk hopeless. Hopeless is without God in the world. Yet Dick Lucas rightly reminds us, it's not just Gentiles that have the issue. He said, a hostile mind toward God, Lucas writes, was not restricted to Gentiles, however, as the crucifixion proved. Such are the appalling consequences of the fall, that all people everywhere are known by a mentality that is naturally antagonistic to the truth of God. You realize that? The Colossians were enemies in their minds because of their evil behavior, as we all were before we turned to Christ by faith. Look at this. You want to know why we're alienated from God? It ain't God's fault. It's because of our evil behavior. Now listen, that's extremely unpopular. It always has been, but it really is in our day. We have this idea that we're pretty good. People are good in general, right? You know, they got to make a couple mistakes. We're only human. But in general, we're good. That's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the gospel teaches. It's to say that since the fall of man, people are not only not good by nature, but we are flat out evil. We are antagonistic to the things of God. We're not just indifferent. We're antagonistic. And anybody who shares the gospel knows, what, knows that experience for themselves. The deeper you go, the further you push, what happens? The more hostile, even people that you thought were nice and kind and gentle, they get ugly. And we wonder why God seems so distant. And we just can't understand, why is God so far away? 
It's, I, you know, I thought about, I was trying to think of a good illustration, and then it really hit me. It's like a couple who goes to a dinner party, and one partner spends the entire night in the arms of other people, other lovers, drinking, laughing, saying mean things about their spouse, only to be shocked when they're in a drunken stupor and they go to their, go to their car to look for their spouse, and the car's gone. And, and, and they don't understand why isn't their spouse taking their phone calls. Well, we want to say hello. It's because of your evil behavior, not your spouse. What Paul is saying is you would do well to remember what you once were, that you were in such a sad, hopeless, and helpless state. I remember when I was preaching through Romans, when I was at DRPC, Dwaynesburg Reformed Presbyterian Church, and a couple of folks from the Newport's neighborhood had come to church. And they came for two Sundays, and when they came, I was actually preaching on the bad news, where Paul deals with like two or three chapters, how all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and he goes into great detail of how no one seeks God, their throats are open, you know, like he really show, shows us where we are apart from Christ. And I never saw him again. And I found out through Tom and Donna why they left. They said the preaching was depressing. Now, sometimes I could take things personally and wonder if I could do things better. In that particular situation, I felt bad they didn't come, but I didn't take it personal. And I'll tell you why. We need to be mindful of what we were by nature so we can truly and deeply appreciate what we are now by grace. We will never understand how much we owe how deeply God loves us and how much it cost God to bring us, to reconcile us back to himself until we understand what bad of a way we really were. I never apologize for reminding you of what you were before Jesus found you. That's what you were. Alienated, estranged, far from God. But that's why the good news is so much sweeter. Because then Paul doesn't stop there, of course. He tells us where we are now by the grace of God. Look at verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Just as you were in the, the, the depths of depression, you should be on the top of the mountain exulting now. But now. Two of the most awesome words in the entire Bible. But now. What wonderful words. And Paul says, he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. And what I want you to see here is, notice who initiated the reconciliation. Was it man that sought God out and said, oh man, I'm estranged, I really messed up, let me go find God? Is that what happens here? No, it says, now he has reconciled you. That is, God is the one that goes and takes the initiative to bring you back. It's the dist lover that can't bear to be separate and does something about it. E.F. Harrison puts it this way. Even in the face of rebellion and bitter hatred, God carried through the work of reconciliation. He took the initiative without waiting for men to come halfway. It is God who acts in reconciliation. 
It is man who is reconciled. Isn't that awesome? You were alienated, but God didn't leave it that way. He did something about it. He reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Listen, there is no greater condescension, condescension than that. No greater love, no greater grace. See, liberal theology and now the, um, heretical, postmodern, whatever it is called nowadays, theology, will tell you that's paganism, that, that blood sacrifice has to, has to placate an angry God. That's what all the pagans used to do, you remember? They would offer up sacrifices. Some of them were so wicked, they would offer up their own children, right? Let me tell you how this is absolutely different than the gospel. The gospel makes it very clear that no amount of our own sacrifice, nothing we could ever do in our own effort or own religiosity could ever bring us reconciliation with God. But what does the gospel say? The gospel said that God tells us that God prepared the sacrifice, that God gave his only son, that he loved you so much, he gave his one and only son in your place, took the punishment, that your wicked behavior, that's right, call it what it is, please. I, I, I am freed when I call my behavior what it was. Wicked and is sometimes. Wicked behavior. Jesus took the hit. There's a story that I read about where there was a mother and a child in a car. And someone swerved into their lane. They did a head-on collision. And the mother, of course, acted quickly and put her arms around the child. And the child, when the child came to, was scared to death because there was blood all over him. But then he recognized something. It wasn't his blood. It was his mother's. She took the brunt so that he could live. That's what God did for us. He took the hit. The old hymn puts it this way. And I hope we will continue to sing old hymns, even if we make the music a little more hip and stuff. I don't mind. I like it to be a little more funky, but the words are awesome. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. And then what? Thou must save. And who? Thou alone. To what end? To what end did God bring us back to himself through the, the blood of, of the physical body of Jesus. It tells us right here, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. Listen, this is what the Colossians need to know and what we need to know. What could be more powerful? What can be a more complete salvation than that? To become holy in God's sight. To be free from accusation so no accusation sticks on you, man. It just bounces off. Like water off the back of a duck, as they say. All because the blood of the all-supreme, all-sufficient Christ was applied to you. I don't know about you, but sometimes that's almost too much for me to take in. You know, I remember, um, Tom Donner are going to groan, good thing my wife's not here. But um, when I go to Italy, I always go to the comune. And I always try to dig up deeper my family roots. Yeah, it's kind of fun and interesting. It's like being a detective. And when I went to Cesaronca, I just like saying Cesaronca. It's 
cool name. But anyway, when I went to Cesaronca, um, I'm digging deep, and this woman only speaks Italian. You know, she's kind of like looking half bored, and all of a sudden she looks at me, she goes, oh, santo, nobilita. And I was so excited because this one little corner of my family, there's nobility. <laughs> you know, I was from a, a noble race. You know, it's so cool to see that. And that was by my blood. It was through DNA. Well, a much more important thing than that is the Bible tells us that through the blood of Jesus, you are grafted in to his body. You are brought into his kingdom. And when God sees you, guess what he sees? Nobilita. You're clean. You're righteous in his sight. All this beautiful stuff brings us to something that kind of throws a little cold water on us and shakes us up a little bit. Because right after all this beautiful thing, what you were, what you are now, Paul throws this on us. And he tells us we, we must continue. Look at verse 23. He gives us this conditional clause. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Ooh. So Paul is telling us here, this is only true of us, only true of the Colossians, and by inference, only true of us as believers, if we continue to believe in Jesus. Listen, if our connection to God is the blood of Jesus, not DNA, and if it's only through our faith that we're united to Christ, then guess what? We have to continue to trust. Make sense? Now, many commentators rightly point out that Paul is not writing this because he has deep doubts about the Colossian believers, that they'll continue believing. He's already said, called them holy and faithful brothers in Christ in verse 2. He's already commended their genuine faith, hope, and love in verses 4 and 5. So then why does Paul throw in this conditional clause? Listen, this is important. If you haven't, if you're a little sleepy, this is the time to wake up. I agree wholeheartedly with those who say that Paul is giving them a true warning to take dead seriously. If they truly expect the wonderful truths of verse 22 to hold true of them in the end, then they need to keep on believing in Christ. That is to say, they mustn't let any false teaching any teaching that leads away from the supremacy and the full sufficiency of Christ to move them from their secure, firm foundation of faith in Christ. This was a real danger in Colossae because um, for those of you who haven't been with us, there were false teachers there that were preaching crazy things, things that like Jesus isn't enough, you have to go through the mediation of angels, <laughs> which by the way is why he was um, pointing out that it's through the physical body of Jesus. Jesus had a real body. It was really crucified for us. They were teaching that it was through religiosity that we deal with our sins. Do not touch, do not taste these rules of humans. They were teaching to go back to the Old Testament shadows, keeping Sabbaths, keeping new moons, not eating this, eating that. And Paul is basically saying if you go back to those things, you're leaving what? You're leaving Jesus. This is a true warning. This isn't a fake warning. F.F. Bruce puts it this way. If the Bible teaches the final perseverance of the saints, it also teaches that the saints are those who finally persevere in Christ. And then he writes this. This is so important for you to know. 
continuance is the test of reality. You with me on that? In other words, you're a real believer? How are you going to show it? You're going to continue. Look, we know those who don't continue. Listen, it is a heartbreak. When I first got saved, there were brothers and sisters, I thought were brothers and sisters, that I had deep, beautiful fellowship with that no longer are with Jesus. It's a real thing, and it wrenches my heart. Now, I know, theologically, that means they never were of us. So 1 John talks about, if they were of us, they would have stayed. But their going shows they never were a part of us. And so the test of really being a real, genuine believer is that you will continue believing. That's what Paul is saying. And I'm going to take it a step further. Uh-oh, now you're really going to be listening. We have Presbytery this Saturday, so you can talk to my Presbytery about this. But I'm going to take it a step further. It's comments like this in the Word of God that God uses to help enable his true saints to do just that, to continue in your faith in Christ. We need the Word of God to be working mightily in us to preserve us. God, Jesus, when he prayed to the Father, his high priestly prayer, he said, Lord, sanctify them by what? The truth. And then he said, Father, your word is truth. Listen, you should be, I'm sorry, I'm going to do a little uh, pastor preaching this morning. You should be more excited about coming Sunday morning to hear what God has to tell you than anything else, than any movie, any event. You should be saying, you should be at the edge of your seat, what is my Father going to tell me this morning? What's he going to feed me with? What's he going to strengthen me with so that I will remain true? So when that great and terrible day comes, I will be found believing when the smoke clears. See, Paul doesn't want the Colossians or us for that matter to become careless or lackadaisical in our faith, but to remain diligent, to take the spiritual danger of false teaching with uttermost seriousness. Seriousness. Look at what he goes on to say. Established and firm. Not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. One more hymn for you. My my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. You can say amen now. Don't be moved, he says. Stand in firm. I don't care how beautiful these people are. I don't care how charismatic. I don't care how great of a speaker they are. No angel is going to bring you to God. No evil angel, can, evil angel can take you away from God. Human religiosity won't do it either. How many religious people are going straight to hell? It's only one thing. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. When I first got saved, I believed that. I got to keep believing that. And by his grace, I do. You got to do what Pilgrim and Pilgrim's Progress did when everybody was trying to pull him back to the city of destruction. Put his finger in his ears and said, life, life, eternal life. You know what? I've been a Christian long enough that I'm sick of people saying I'm narrow-minded. But you know what? On this, I'm narrow-minded. And you ain't getting in. 
Yeah, I got tunnel vision. And I want to tell you why. False teaching, that is bad theology, alternate methods of salvation, they're not merely a matter of filling your head with bad and false ideas. But listen, why this is so important. It's a matter of transferring your trust to the wrong object. That's the problem. It's not that you don't have your theology lined up perfectly. Hey, we all, none of us are perfect. It's that it turns you away from your simple devotion and faith in who? Jesus. Your only heavenly connection. Paul closes by saying, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Here's his point. His point is the gospel you heard from Epaphras. That's the same, the gospel you received, it's the same gospel that's now being preached globally. It's not some little strange me uh, message or a little spin on it. This is the message. You heard the right one of which I, an apostle, an official sent one of Christ Jesus, I am a servant. And he says that while he's in prison. He's willing to give his life to make sure this word gets out because it's, it's our only life. It's the only way to be reconciled with God. And so now you get the punch of the whole big pa passage here. Since Christ is the supreme and all-sufficient Lord of all, we must continue in our faith in him, not move from the hope held out in the gospel. I'm going to close with this because I love the line. And it should be filling you with joy too. The way that Paul puts it, the hope held out in the gospel. Are you excited about that hope? Or is your hope in this earth? What you can get now? Making this world some kind of paradise. We've seen too many failed experiments to know this ain't paradise. Is your hope in any political party? I don't care who it is. They're going to fail. Yeah, I need an amen on that. Amen. You know where my hope is? And I'll tell you, I, I knew no matter what was going to happen, I got to preach a little bit about this election. I don't matter who my, who my president is, who my earthly king is, I'll tell you this much. My hope ain't there. My hope is in the king of kings and the Lord of lords who transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. And I'll tell you what, it's our chance now before we get to that beautiful heaven to be with Jesus, to show this world the right way. It's our chance now to show Democrats, Republican, Independents, whatever else we are, black, white, rich, poor, this is how we love each other. It's God's experiment. It's called the church. You know what? When I woke up, I knew one thing. No matter who my president is, I got to love mercy do justly, and walk humbly with my God. Listen, we have an awesome, incredible, I can't use words to say how wonderful Jesus is. Let's continue to have faith in him and show the world that nothing shakes us, that we keep going with a hope that's held out in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, how we thank you for this exhortation. This is not the time to lay down. This is not the time to be lackadaisical. This is the time to continue as we begun, trusting not in our own works or the work of any other frame, no matter how sweet, but in the finished work of Jesus who shed his blood to bring us back to you. 
Thank you, Father. We're no longer alienated. We know there are many in this world that are, so use us to be your people of peace, to be those who preach the message of reconciliation, Lord, that you have made a way through your Son for us not to be alienated, but to be with you once again. Be with us as individuals, be with us as a a New City Fellowship, and be with us as the larger church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.